there's a Japanese word, wabi. It translates to less is more. There's another Japanese word, sabi, that translates to attentive melancholy. Now, when these two different words are brought together, they form a new concept, a way of speaking about the beauty in the imperfect, beauty in the forgotten places and even moments of our lives, wabi-sabi. This idea dates back to the 14th century and began to find its way in various aspects of Japanese life. The art form Kintsugi is one example of how this philosophy gets embodied in a culture. Kintsugi literally means joinery, and it's about taking a lacquer and mixing gold and silver with it so that you can mend broken pottery and emphasize the imperfections. And so the vase or the pot becomes of more value, not less, when you can see where it once was broken. Wabi-sabi. The bonsai tree is another great example of wabi-sabi expressed. You see, when a culture has words that embody such rich ideas, as a child, you learn these ideas when you learn the language. You learn the concepts. And you know that you can look and search for things that are perfectly imperfect. I was sharing this idea with somebody who was going through a rough time. I was trying to help them find a new way to look at their life. They interrupted me and they said they didn't want to hear any more ideas about other cultures or Eastern philosophies or spiritualities. They're just getting too mad. And I asked them why they thought so. He said, well, listen, I've spent the last 30 years of my life defending the ideas of Western culture in my job, in my career. And it seems like the very values that I've defended have actually made me unwell. And when I hear you talk about these other ideas, these, these uh, ancient philosophies and spiritualities, it just makes me mad because it makes me wonder what it was all for. Wow. He schooled me in that moment. I really appreciated him being honest with me, duly noted, as I speak to others in that same career path. But I asked him, I said, can I, can I just tell you for a moment why I feel the need to talk about other cultures and philosophies and ancient spiritual ideas? He reluctantly said, okay. I said, I just feel that when you're raised seeing the world a certain way, and you're given a limited language to comprehend what you experience, you can end up feeling stuck, like this is the only way to see and experience the world around me. And when it breaks, it's trash. You're broken. Especially when you live in a culture that doesn't know how to repair anything anymore. Everything is disposable. I told him that I want to interrupt that thinking. I think that learning from our past helps us make better decisions in the present, and it also introduces new ways of seeing the world. We are not living in a singular story. If your thinking is killing you, you don't just need new thoughts. You need a new way of thinking about a lot of things. We need a new way of thinking about love and hope and success and failure, pain and loss, life and death itself. We need a new way of thinking, not just because we need more knowledge, not that knowledge is bad, but we need wisdom. And wisdom is knowing how to apply knowledge. And if you're hungry for it, it begins to reveal itself to you in the often overlooked, discarded moments of our lives. Wabi-sabi. Is it possible that we can discover wisdom on the far side of pain? Well, the sages say so. Is it possible that we can experience wisdom on the far side of someone else's pain? 
and suffering and difficulty. Yeah, it is. I think it can take twice as much work, but it can be just as transforming. That's my experience. We are beginning today a four-week series from the book of James. James is considered a book written in the style of the wisdom traditions. It's a short epistle in the New Testament. After the four biographies of Jesus known as the Gospels, the rest of the New Testament is made up of letters or epistles, most of them written by Paul, but there are a few others written by or in the voice of a few of the disciples. The letter of James has two major obvious influences. Firstly, the Sermon on the Mount. The teachings of Jesus have influenced this small letter. Clearly, James was in Jesus' presence and had heard these teachings on the side of that mountain. And traveling with Jesus, he would have heard them repeated again and again and again. They made an impact on James's life. The second major influence is the book of Proverbs. James reads like wisdom literature. It is filled with wise sayings and catchy one-liners. It is masterfully written, and the ideas found within it transcend time. James would have read the Proverbs easily, and his writing style takes on that influence. And so we're going to mind four of his major themes over the next few weeks. Now, you might be interested to know that his name actually isn't James. It's actually Jacob. From the Hebrew, Jacob. From the Greek, Jacobus. But in every place that it's mentioned in the New Testament, it's translated as James. Now, the story of its etymology is fascinating. Some even suggesting that those who put together the King James Bible, made the switch as a nod to King James himself. Regardless, it doesn't change the power of what Jacob writes. Jacob, or James as he's known now, is a very different letter among the New Testament writings. It is considered to be the first of the epistles written possibly less than 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Early historians believe that James was murdered for his faith only a few years after this letter was distributed. Now, James is also unique in that he's the half-brother of Jesus, mentioned several times in the Gospels. And after Jesus' death, James went on to lead the mother church in Jerusalem. Acts 15 records that it was James that stood up after hearing about Peter and his experience of discovering God amongst the non-Jewish community, specifically his visit with the Roman centurion Cornelius. It's a fascinating story. James was very instrumental in breaking down the barriers for non-Jewish followers of Jesus in his role as an early church leader. James had the reputation of being a wise peacemaker. You pick up on that vibe as you sit with his writings. He was called James the Just. Actually, he was called Jacob the Just, but hey. He had the nickname Old Camel Knees by a second century historian who records that James was known to frequently um, find himself in the temple in Jerusalem praying for other people to the point that his knees became calloused over time. He was a legend, and for good reason. And when you read his mail, you discover that we all need the wisdom of Jacob, of James, in our lives. Not only has he heard the teachings of Jesus, specifically the Sermon on the Mount, God's vision for a new humanity, James has had the opportunity to embody these ideas. Almost two decades after hearing them, he has discovered something, and we would do well to sit at his feet. Now, James doesn't constantly quote Jesus in his letter of wise sayings. 
He doesn't say, Jesus said this, and so it must be true. No, James doesn't have to. It's not just wise because Jesus said it. It's wisdom because James has found it to be true. And this is a great example of how Jesus' teachings influence our lives if we let them. No wonder in Acts chapter 4, it says that some religious leaders heard the disciples speaking and were amazed that they'd been unschooled and they were ordinary even. And somehow they've acquired more than just knowledge. But the disciples' boldness led these uh, observers to the conclusion that they must have been with Jesus. Jacob knew Jesus and didn't just know his teachings, but he had come to understand why Jesus' teachings mattered. And that becomes obvious in this letter. Written during some of the most difficult times in uh, Jewish uh, history in that first century, the early followers of the way had experienced incredible persecution by the Jewish community. As an example, you'll recall that even Paul the Apostle, before his conversion in these early years after Jesus was crucified, was hunting down followers of Jesus to kill and intimidate. The early church faced deep suffering at the hands of religious leaders and by Rome, and they had experienced famine and extreme poverty all during this time. And so the church began to scatter, to flee, and James decides it's time to address them wherever they may be. So he sends a letter filled to the brim with practical, sagely advice. And so Jacob begins this letter, addressing it to the Christian Jewish community that has been scattered all over Israel and beyond. And after his initial greeting, these are the words that Jacob opens with. I'm going to read this out of J.B. Phillips' translation. When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Realize that they come to test your faith and to produce in you the quality of endurance, but let the process go on until that endurance is fully developed, and you will find you have become people of mature character with the right sort of independence. And if, in the process, any of you does not know how to meet any particular problem that you may have, you only have to ask God who gives generously to all mankind without making them feel foolish or guilty. And you may be quite sure that the necessary wisdom will be given to him. You must ask in sincere faith without secret doubts as to whether or not you really want God's help. The person who trusts God without inward reservations. The person who doesn't trust God with inward reservations, he writes, is like the wave of the sea carried forward by the wind, one moment and driven back the next. These extraordinary ideas, that our trust in God desires to affect the way we experience discomfort and disturbance and disruption. In fact, I think James is saying that, that actually our perception of discomfort and disruption influences how we experience it. So what if we changed our perception? And you know what? He may be onto something here. If we can only get past how ridiculous it sounds, the NIV translates that first verse this way, consider it pure joy when you experience difficulties. Is James nuts? But that first word in the sentence is key. Consider. What James is saying here is think alternatively about what you're experiencing. Think creatively. Be curious. 
take charge of where your thinking can go. There is an intentionality to it. You are leading your thinking towards something, and that something is counterintuitive. Consider joy when you're struggling, he writes. Now, you've heard me say that the difference between happiness and joy is that happiness requires circumstances to exist, but joy doesn't. Joy only requires meaning. So to consider joy when you find yourself struggling is actually good advice. He doesn't say consider happiness when you struggle. No, consider making this meaningful, making it matter. He says that this can mean something, that it doesn't just have to be pain or suffering, that it can be more or allow it to develop something in you. See, if you can't change your circumstances, change how you perceive them. And when you feel you have no control over your situation, you still have control over how you think about your situation. You always have a choice. Dieter Uchtdorf says that it's your response to adversity, not just the adversity itself, that will determine how your life's story will develop. Another way of saying it could be, don't just let your circumstances determine how your life unfolds. Let your choices do that. Let your faith, let your trust in God do that. Considering difficult times, pure joy, what? That's alternative for sure. James goes on to say, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Here's how I understand this. Because you know that when your trust in God is pushed to its limits, the stretching is meant to expand you, not punish you. Hang in there. Hold on and don't let go. Let it come to completion so it feels like transformation. You're a child of God, not a rubber band. James is suggesting these are opportunities to develop something in us. Perseverance. To mature something in us beautiful, something grand. To expand us, to grow us, to develop us so that we can become full-grown, mature, well-rounded, whole and complete. And all we need to do is consider that some kind of joy can be experienced through this. That some kind of meaning, importance, purpose can be fuel to get me to the other side or just to keep me moving forward. Where perhaps my perception might be different. It's all about trust. A word that isn't often used a lot in religious circles. Many have favored translating the Greek word for it in the New Testament as faith instead of trust. But faith often makes us, um, makes us think that everything's going to work out, whereas trust says it may not work out and I will be okay. That is what the faith of the apostles looked like. Trusting in God. Just because things aren't good doesn't mean they have to be bad. I don't believe that difficult things happen to us to teach us lessons, but that doesn't mean there isn't something to learn. Being fully aware that the testing of your faith, of your trust in God, can accomplish perseverance, can achieve, can bring about resilience. Being aware, another translation is knowing that Whenever you experience something that pushes you or blows you or blows off the cobwebs off your trust in the divine, just when you thought you had it all figured out, well, there's your problem. We're not here to figure it all out. We're here to grow. But how can I guarantee that my tedious disruptions are working for my benefit? 
Consider, James says. Think differently about them. Everything doesn't have to be an obstacle. Is it possible that some things, when we look at them through the eyes of faith, can become pedestals? Instead of um, something standing in my way, it's something for me to, to climb and gain a whole new perspective of everything. Keep on going. Don't give up. Trust God. This isn't about being stubborn and obstinate, plowing through. I think it's about building something out of what you're given. Instead of being buried by your troubles, you're planted by them and you grow. Let perseverance finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything, James writes. And even if you're flabbergasted, exhausted, overwhelmed, James says that God's wisdom pours down to those who seek it. He says, if in the process any of you lack or does not know how to meet any particular problem, you only have to ask God who gives generously to all without making them feel foolish or guilty. And he may be quite sure that the necessary wisdom will be given to you. And it all begins by considering that there can be more happening here. Sometimes the choice to wake up in the morning is an act of faith. That just getting out of bed sometimes is an act of trust. Or maybe it's closing your eyes at the end of a troubled day. Choosing sleep is an incredible act of trust. Casting your cares on God. Praying for new eyes to see an old problem. Even getting to a place where you ask God for help, for divine wisdom, in seeing what you're unable to see. Beauty and even joy in the midst of difficulties. I think old Camel Knees here is onto something, and he offers us a piece of wisdom. <laughs>